afternoon. Uh, you're listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, with me in the studio is Professor Janice Richardson uh, from Monash University. Um, Janice is a, a philosopher, a scholar in the fields of uh, legal philosophy, um, classical political philosophy, uh, feminist philosophy and legal theory. And we're here um, to talk, among other things, about her book, on Law and the Philosophy of, of Privacy uh, uh, by Janice Richardson. Um, and I'm going to be saying, uh, I'm going to be pronouncing the word privacy for the duration of this podcast, um, just, just for reasons of standardisation. Um, Janice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, uh, I, 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 am, I assure you the, the honour is all mine. Um, Janice, um, I'm going to ask you, as I ask all of my guests, how did philosophy ruin your life? <laughs> Um, I think it's a great question because it prompts you, first of all, given that you're interested in philosophy, to think about what ruining your life would mean uh-huh. and then also to uh, direct you into something um, slightly autobiographical, I suppose, in that uh, I gave up litigating for trade unions uh, because I became so interested in philosophy. Right. And um, But let me talk about ruining it before I start sure, to... Uh, sure to uh, think about what I did, which was really get particularly interested in feminist philosophy, feminist theory. Um, So ruining, (laughs) I thought about it because I knew this was a question. (laughs) And the more I thought about it, the worse it got in terms of trying to come up with a a cool answer that would grab people. (laughs) But I kept having different images of what ruining it would be and some of it of course in relation to feminism so you think of a a swooning woman who's been done wrong saying you have ruined Uh me sir which of course fits on a sexual double standard yes yes very much but then of course in terms of um, giving up litigation giving up being a lawyer and doing philosophy yes and also in the given that there's a critical chapter about uh, neoliberalism in my book and about the ideas that Foucault talks about how we start to see things all in terms of seeing ourselves as an enterprise Mm -hmm. and everything in terms of money ruining somebody need not be their reputation of course historically it can also be damaging their bank balance ruining them in those senses rather than um, leading them astray Um. so that that came to mind and it, it came to mind just because of something in one of your earlier interviews with Jess, which I thought was brilliant, where she said sometimes, you know, the the critical philosophy can make you upset and uneasy. And I thought, that's right. But actually, um, it's the other way as well. And I think that's something that you, you both agreed as well. But my experience with it wasn't the philosophy that she was talking about, but with feminist philosophy and actually with feminism is that whilst that can be disturbing as you think about it, it is also um, something that's really useful to you that allows you to think in certain situations, say when I was litigating somebody who'd had difficulties in the workplace with sexual harassment or something like that, they always sit across the table to you and say, oh, you know, I may have done things. And they start to attribute it to themselves and blame themselves. And I think actually when you look at people in the same situation and have examined the framework, you're then able to 
come up with, I suppose Spinoza would say, more adequate knowledge of the situation. And that's what perhaps more uh, critical theory can, can give you. A way of looking and dealing with, not at this time necessarily, just practical situations, but theoretical frameworks that inform them. And philosophy, of course, is a great and wonderful mine of um, important historical political frameworks and crystallises and brings out what is involved in thinking certain things. And examining those and, you know, the brilliance of them, somebody, say, like Kant in those formal frameworks, but doing so from, as I was interested in the feminist perspective, actually allows you to try to not just say what's wrong with the framework or that somehow women have been missed out and should be added in, Mm. but to be able to try and think constructively and creatively about how you would change the frameworks and I think there's something really positive about about that so in terms of philosophy ruining your life a it can hit your back balance of course for lots of people Mm -hmm. uh but and we'll talk about neoliberalism but b b it actually um it gives you it gives you details as to what's involved in certain positions and frameworks, some of which you may not like, but some of which may be very useful. And by expanding on it and thinking in detail what's at stake in some of the beliefs that people have, you're able to then um, produce something better. So I think this may be a bit sunny. I know you've got lots of Lacanians and I look like... <laughs> look, they, I look more like Tigger to their Eeyore, which is, I realise, awful because it's against the general ethos of the introduction in which we're not going to be sunny about these things. But in some ways, I think that, um, you know, feminist philosophy in some ways is, is something positive and yeah. creative and not just feminist philosophy, of course. It, it opens up to, to other sort of more critical positions. <laughs> Sorry, that was really long. <laughs> oh, not James apologise. Oh, no, that was a that was an extraordinary answer, Janice. I mean, and, and sorry, and that can sound like a euphemism. I mean, that was a wonderful <laughs> answer, Janice, in the sense um, that I mean, f- first of all, I um, admire the fact that you um, how how, much, how carefully you've thought about the the title of the podcast i must i must say i'd never thought and i think it's very instructive for you to mention the sense of ruination in re- mm. in regards to have to have spoilt the the woman as commodity right like insofar mm. as her virginity has been i've never thought of that of that connotation amongst ruination but also i i can't think of a better introduction to the to the themes of your book and some of and and uh, your work generally insofar as you've you've mentioned um, both f- philosophy in, in terms of one sense of ruination of, as uh, the exit from law, I believe, at some level you were, you were a barrister. As, 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 I was a solicitor for trade solicitor. unions. Ah, yes, yes, right. Yes. Um, solicitor for, tra- for trade unions. But, um, but also you've mentioned uh, something crucial to your, your book, which is the, um, the fact that traditionally, like the phrase ruined your life these days, likely to be understood through... Uh, 
a framework of of the commodification of of all things right like oneself as a commodity the extent to which i can have ruined my life perceived as a commodity like via philosophy or whatever i may have ruined my own marketability but also i think i i'm, I'm very glad you um for what you called your your tiggerishness in the <laughs> sense that i think it is crucial to to your um uh philosophical uh, intervention in, in in on the question of privacy and and uh, in general in relation to this this affirmative dimension dimension of, of philosophy um, and that that affirmative dimension the the growth in terms of what Spinoza calls calls adequate knowledge um, relating that to uh, an increase in in power and and to joy right is is not incommensurable with um, what we would normally associate with critique so so mm. so we've got something that is simultaneously and I, I see this very strongly in your work um, critical critical and affirmative that critique is not about producing guilt or shame or, or sadness right that 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 we're actually talking about about how the you get to this in the book how the empowering of of anyone to some extent is related to the empowering of of everyone that's a crass formulation but but i will will um tr unpick the nuances of it as we as we go along so thank you for, for that janice um okay so uh, perhaps just just continuing on this on this uh, biographical thread of your introduction. So you you were um, exposed, if I'm uh, not mistaken, to philosophy at the University of, of Warwick, yep. which um, uh, is very very famous, I think, particularly in the last kind of twenty years or so, uh, um, for being a kind of hub, at least at least in, back in the day, particularly in the eighties and nineties, for continental philosophy in in. Uh, Europe in all its forms of, of, of feminist philosophy, different kinds of political philosophy, early translations of Badiou and Deleuze. Can you tell me a bit about what, what the milieu was like at the time <laughs> you were at, at Warwick? How, what was your experience of, of Warwick in the, um, back in the day? Oh, I loved it. And I was really lucky, actually. Um, I, I was teaching full-time, but I, I spent quite a, a time there. And I uh, took my time and did a master's before um, doing my PhD and I was lucky enough to have a whole ream of uh, would that be the collective <laughs> a joy joyfulness of <laughs> feminist philosophers um, collective noun for joyful <laughs> yeah okay I like yeah. um, so uh, Christine Battersby was at Warwick right, and I, right. I'm really interested in her reworking of Kant, Kant yes, uh, which yes. I think is really important mm -hmm. and actually useful for uh, Spinoza. So I'll make that link in a moment. Yeah, sure. This is me writing it down to come back to it. Mm -hmm. um, but also there were visiting professors, um, Adriana Cavarero, yeah. whose who's work I loved and who I later... Um, I was delighted to be invited to Italy um, to uh, to give some lectures there and to be with her. She's uh, fantastic. And Drusilla Cornell, of course, oh, who oh. had that overlap with um, with law and philosophy. Yes. And again, Kantian philosophy, yes. um, like um, Christine, but not, um, not in the same sort of way. Um, and I was also involved with the Feminist Philosophy Weekly Group, so... Uh, um, it was a, a really good atmosphere, and uh, and Christine, whilst her own work is um, on this reworking of Kant and on aesthetics that 
I'll talk about in a moment, uh, also gave a course on Irigaray. Yes. And uh, that's fascinating as well. Um, I think her work has just come on to this and why I later sort of in some ways um, moved to Spinoza. Um, But I really like what she she does really with the Kant's third critique in and what interests me wasn't I mean coming out of law it wasn't really the aesthetics but the question that was very much uh, still I suppose in a way but at the same time very much question in feminist philosophy about essentialism I mean the idea of you know what it is to be a woman what it is to be human and um the idea, of course, that there is something really problematic about saying you're a different type of person. Yes, yes, um, indeed. One that likes, that ought to be doing the washing up and, <laughs> and not be doing philosophy. Oh, very much um, yeah. And so it, it opens up, in a way I think feminism, feminist philosophy does, to a whole lot of philosophical questions that are important and not just ones that are in political philosophy although that I think it really informs those and particularly informs questions about the relationship between theory and practice yes. and also power in a way that you know is not seen as a sort of top down or and the public private divide of course yes. that's so central um, that what happens in the home was a political issue and not something private personal natural i mean those were really important and i think are still really important issues that have been theorized very deeply from different different positions um i said should structure this but that's my way background as to why this move um with what is a radical reworking of kant has some of that moves over rigori but is not the same and what it takes from a rigori is the idea that you um don't have a self by being defined by what it's not or from a cut from the other um and it's done through kant because there's a discussion to illustrate it um discussion about the way that the sublime works in Kant and if you take the dynamic sublime from the third critique the the idea I always put it to simplify as kind of two stages uh, that the viewer whom Kant of course thought uh, shouldn't be sullied by trade or you know the oriental there was the racism as well as issues about gender but nevertheless the viewer who um, is able to appreciate the sublime is threatened by the might of nature, volcanoes, you know, yeah. so um, the idea of nature that's threatening to us rather than charming and made for us, or the idea that it, we can feel as if it's made for us. Um, so the threatening nature um, could evoke terror, but doesn't. In the first stage, it's one of the imagination of how we could be threatened by nature that's evoked by the art object in his uh, critical theory, not his pre-critical observations. And in the second stage, it's recognising your super-sensible vocation, your ability 
as a creature of reason to stand up to nature and uh, be able to um, not give in, to behave morally through reason, to not give in to it. And what um, Christian Battersby does is make the point that this involves some degree of cutting yourself off, of being superior, not in the natural realm, as it were, but in the intellectual realm. And it's based on this idea of, of a, you know, standing up and separation. And what she shows by uh, looking at the history of art and female artists who were um, blocked, who were told, you know, the sublime wasn't a subject for them. Um, as Kant says to some extent <laughs> himself, yes. Yeah. Um, that they should... Um, that there's a different image in which a self emerges through relations with others. That's a, a, a sort of dynamic but a mm. emergent sort of process. And it's that move I'm really interested in. Mm. And it's how to think that move... Um, it is clearly political, whilst also being in an aesthetic context. But, of course, I was in law, and I'm interested in that sort of move um it's mentioned in my book yes. but i also for a similar sort of move um that in fact does something slightly different i use spinoza i mean one of christine's central points is how you think about what it would be in the history of thought and in aesthetics if women's bodies and the way that they were positioned in networks of power were seen as being the norm. Yes, yes. And I, I do like that move as well. Um, I end up using Spinoza because of D7, I suppose. I like, <laughs> I mean, in a way, I, I thought about doing it through Battersby's move, but there are two reasons I moved to Spinoza whilst also liking that idea of selfhood that she's she's thinking about um, and one was because Spinoza's as Balabar says a, a um, theorist of theorist individuality of, yes, is the form exactly of yes yeah. but also of communication indeed um, he stresses this very strongly. Yes, yeah. yes, and I was. It seems rather odd what I was doing. And shall I shut up for a moment and no, ask no, a no, question? No, no, Janice, please continue as you feel. Otherwise, it's kind of a, a, a sort of. Well, I okay. hope it's got okay. some form here. Okay, but. I can. All right, I can. I mean, I can ask you. I can say that um, on on Battersby and, and and Kant, like you do mention that in the book. Maybe maybe before we get to Spinoza, because I'd like to um, explain what we mean by I'll explain what we mean by D seven to the audience. Janice and I are in a Spinoza reading group together, and <laughs> D seven is a, a common sort of invocation for us. But um, uh, when when you mention uh, Kant and and Battersby reading of the Sublime, this this part of the this your your account here really struck me because you you say um, if I recall correctly, you you recall. Um, Battersby, uh, you follow Battersby in examining the figure of the uh, vagabond as well as the as well as the woman in, in from Kant's anthropology and the way that and and so what we're looking at is the way in which that seeming heroic independence of the of the gendered male mm. subject like like discovering um, his noumenal. Uh, uh, freedom, that which cannot be touched by by nature or can endure through the violence of nature, is in fact, um, you, I seem to recall you you say uh, based on uh, a, a 
a, a kind of ironically figure out but uh, a, a dependence that is not acknowledged the de- a dependence mm. on um uh being in a, a set of economic circumstances kind of in the in the ancient and modern senses of the word that he's both that this this independent uh, man with a bourgeois education who can feel safe and yet ed- edified in the face of the sublime is, um, on the one hand, dependent on the labour of of others for for his social position, but particularly on the on on the unacknowledged um, feminine um, d- domestic domestic labour. And um, when you when you uh, talk talk about that move to um, to uh, that you don't talk about that much in the book, but Battersby's uh, take, as you just mentioned, uh, on um, the feminine, uh, looking at the history of art from the perspective of of women artists, as, as if they were the paradigm for for the subject, as opposed to as opposed to male figures. Um, you mentioned that you start to look at these things in terms of relations of dependence and and so on, and and, and relations generally, something excluded from the Kantian theory of heroic man faced with nature. Um, but I, I remember that, uh, sorry, when, when you said that, you reminded me of passages in, in your book, something I think leading us to Spinoza maybe that you're quite concerned with is the, hmm, is an attention on the one hand to a kind of relational ethics, right? Or, or, or to, looking at, to looking at the roles of like against atomized liberal conceptions of subjectivity, but also a feminist caution that you have around this, that because of traditions of positioning the feminine as the uh, uh, like in the position of perpetually the ethics of, of care of the one who has to mm. who, who you know where we say where we say no uh, um, or even as as uh, you mentioned this Spinoza in the political treatises like women are not ready for civil for civil life or you get similar things for, for Hegel and Kant but they can they can do lots of maybe we'd say unpaid emotional labor through through caring and uh, being nice to people and and having feelings and so yeah I, I was when you when you mentioned Battersby before uh, I imagine you were uh, could you perhaps uh, could you maybe were you interested in saying something about uh, that tension that you felt your, your interest in mm-hmm. this more relational ethics but also um, uh, being concerned with a kind of gendered history of, of, of um, positioning a kind of like feminizing relationality yeah yes there's a lot there Sorry. because some of it is very alarming and uh, there's some very good feminist work on mm. this, on what's problematic um, with a sort of communitarian position. Um, there's a whole lot to say there and I've been making notes okay. to come back. It's, it's from the old days. It's almost like if you don't challenge a point, it goes. So I better, <laughs> that's true, better, that's true. Challenge better now. Mention, <laughs> challenge now. Um, okay, it, whilst we're talking about... Um, Battersby, I should mention as a side point that um, she d- she doesn't discuss the vagabond, but I was bringing in both ah, as, ah. as diff- different points here right. to do with the theme of privacy. Yes, yes. They were, if you like, if you've got, uh, I say this, it's a bit flip, but the Kantian hero of the sublime yeah. who can stand up to the might of nature, transposed into everyday society, it's easier to feel sort of you know, wrongly feel autonomous, you know. Um, And there's plenty of feminist and indeed Marxist work that that says that. I mean, it's not original to me. I'm using it in the context of privacy to look at these distinctions that um, 
Robert Castell's work on The Vagrant um, shows that they were in a difficult position. They were isolated and that was part of the problem oh, because yes. in order to be part of the deserving poor when you needed it you had to be really attached to a place yes and so they seemed to be some some merit when thinking about privacy to think about these these positions um the Kantian hero who's not quite the Kantian hero of course but um feels as if he is it has his guard his privacy guarded by um, secretaries, by other sort of personal assistants or, or whatever, and is is able to um, not feel as channel, challenged. Um, whereas the auxiliary work, it, it has been seen in terms of women's work. If you've got the, you know, going back into the history of... Um, employment and prior to that particular status um, the way that uh, Robert Castell does mm. uh, the vagrant almost looks he, he I mean um, tends to talk about he mm. uh, is his problem, he is confronted with nature and is in some way isolated, but that's the problem because it's yes. not the hero standing up to nature, it's more sort of really being struggling with and being overpowered by nature. Yes. And the woman, in some generic stereotype, yes, yes, yes. um, has the opposite problem in being, mm. you know, too over, too connected, as it were. Um, and that brings out, I suppose, in a way, a caring problem. But I was looking at it just through the lens of historically and about about privacy. Separate point to that, whilst we're talking about um, Battersby, is that one of the points that she makes about the use of the term feminine mm. and woman is that mm. you could have feminine men Yes. In the sense that, um, you know, Byron or Shelley mm -hmm. could be um, a genius. And part of their genius was that the sense that they could be both male and feminine. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, whereas you, you couldn't, I'm just thinking of her book, Gender and Genius, you couldn't actually have the the feminine woman being a genius at all. So femininity in, in somebody who had a male body is associated with genius is associated with genius <laughs> but not in a woman not femininity yeah, in a woman yes. uh, or, yeah in somebody yeah. whose body is classified as, as yes, female yes. or male i yes, should say to yes. be a bit more precise no, so indeed, indeed. just just on those points and then on another point i know mm. we're, i'm just picking up things no, no, that you, you've said which was the explanation of d7 <laughs> which is a, a shorthand here um the idea is that a singular thing is something that has an effect on the world. So it's not that it's fixed in some ways. If you think about feminist work that um, looks at liberalism and communitarianism and the distinctions between it, mm. you don't have a fixed image of an individual who is the explanation for all his or her actions, but you're not fixed within a community either. Yes. It depends on what's happened. And that has much in terms of Battersby's work that I like, in terms of that emergence and not starting with the position of the individual as the explanation for his or her actions. Mm -hmm. 
but what happens with D7 is that you're actually a part of a singular thing to the extent that you're having an effect on the world so that um, it's possible to if you and also you've got the parallelism between mind and body that they're both simply attributes of the same thing so if we're in our Spinoza group all thinking together all sort of arguing and so forth um, then to the extent that we're having an effect we can be viewed as a singular mind in exactly the same way because it affects me it's just an attribute to me um, as if we all pull on a rope together we're never going to do that though because we just <laughs> we're not going to leave the we, buildings we're not going to go jogging either it's not going to happen but you know if we put all our bodies together and uh, yeah we wouldn't move much but you know <laughs> pulling on a rope that would be a, 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 through extension a singular thing that would be us constituting yeah. ourselves yeah. as a, sing- as yes. a singular yes. individual yes. Yes. So yes. what I love about Spinoza is yeah. it starts really simple and people yes. go mm, you know that's, that's really simple and obvious but I think it builds up oh, to something yes. really interesting yes. and communication is right at the centre of that yes. because the whole point is of course sort of um, let me discuss the relationship between inadequate and adequate knowledge in Spinoza's yes. work, which is why I think Balabar's right, of course, to call him philosopher of communication, yes, yes. and why I think it's useful to think about his work in the context of privacy, yes. in the context of asking questions as to what we should view as private that shouldn't be communicated, and what we should view as public um, as important that should be. And the problem with uh, that we have is, of course, free speech is very important and also uh, privacy. If in the context of, um, particularly I'm interested in the philosophy of information mm-hmm. and Luciana Floridi's arguments, mm-hmm. you know, if we think about ourselves as informational, that, that you know, stealing somebody's, taking somebody's private information it can be characterised more like uh, akin to kidnap and more akin mm-hmm. to uh, something that's uh, that's damaging to them when you're they're seen in informational terms. And so there's a pr- we need to deal with privacy and um, respect it while also recognising the vital importance of free speech. So it's trying to make a divide that's a difficult one. You can't err on the side of caution with it. And that's why I think Spinoza's an interesting place to turn because communication is central to our ability to thrive and to help others to thrive. Um, So... The idea is that we start with inadequate knowledge. We have encounters with the world. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand the world. So it's not looking great for us at this this stage. But the encounters mean that um, some things we're indifferent to, but other things, they increase, they give us joy or sadness. And he associates that, of course, with increasing or decreasing our powers of acting and understanding. Um, Something bites us and uh, it diminishes our powers and we feel sadness. Um, 
there's ideas about women um, being irrational or something. If I take it on, as opposed to ignore it, then, you know, potentially the encounter between my mind and other minds, the ideas that I hear, uh, potentially can diminish my powers of acting as well. Um, so at the first stage, inadequate knowledge, it's that linked with imagination and the affects, joy or sadness. But it gives us a way of um, improving our powers of acting when we're able to understand why it is that an encounter was joyful or sad. And it's all around how we can try to improve our powers of acting through our understanding of the world, which sounds, you know, pretty pretty obvious. <laughs> I haven't gone into his, uh, his spectacular metaphysics. Um, but it does leave us with arguments around whether something like revenge porn, for example, is basically uh, simply not just diminishing um, the woman concerned, but also... The other, yes. the other party yes. is actually still at the stage of emotions of um, not understanding the hurt that was involved in the relationship uh, that involves a greater understanding of the history of that society. And so um, it's that's if some communication such as revenge porn is something that merely keeps people at uh, an inadequate stage of knowledge um, linked with simply uh, the imagination and emotions, then it's, you know, you can see in that it's privacy, it's not something for which there's arguments about it being communicated. Compare and contrast, you know, <laughs> cures for cancer and various things, I mean, that's an extreme, of course, there are plenty of things that should be communicated just because there's no reason why why they shouldn't, even if we're entirely indifferent to yes, them. Yes, yes. You know, um, and of course, uh, Spinoza makes arguments for free speech well before um, John Stuart Mill. Oh, yes. But, but I think it's interesting when you think about it in those terms, because he's... Just to mention Jean Hampton for a moment, whose work I think is, is interesting, though in some ways problematic. Um, she says that in contract theory, there are two ethical positions. Hobbes that she sees as mimicking ethics just so that we can get, get, on, get what we want from people by cooperating, but we wouldn't do it if we were self-sufficient. So it's a mimicry of ethics. And the Kantian ethics that is about respect for personhood. And they're the two that she sees coming out of the social contract tradition. Now, in my previous book, I talk about the social contractarians and do so with regard to feminist concepts of self um, and how their concepts of self differ and I think that's important well I would put Spinoza in there um, not not because he's a typical social contractarian no, 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 <laughs> I defend him from that <laughs> but because I think the way that he that his brilliance is that he can take a conceptual framework and twist it with he uses the same sorts of arguments you can see how he's framing it in in some ways like Hobbes and yet when he changes the meaning of 
the individual, the atomistic individual in Hobbes, into the sort of individual that can that is not the explanation of their own activities and but is also capable of becoming singular things with others, it completely changes it. Actually at a meta level you could say that what's happening with this is that you can split ide- split conceptual frameworks into different ideas and when you shift one of them, like this image of what it is to be an individual, what pans out is uh, what comes out of it is an, a different model completely and it has a lot of implications that you can pick. And that's why of course changing the position of women in in conceptual frameworks that either exclude them or um, more often sometimes include and sometimes exclude or put, put them in a, a difficult position. Once you focus in on that, what in some ways could seem against the grain a particularly small point, um, once that gets shifted, it's not about saying, oh, well, you know, the framework's hopeless and we can write it off. Sometimes it's about taking some of these major um, fascinating conceptual frameworks of the world, but making them better, improving them in certain ways, um, and not just reversing the power situation. So, for man, you see woman or something like that. Um, but it's, I suppose, it's about uh, philosophy ruining your life if it's bad philosophy. But, yes. but the. Uh, the philosophy isn't simply the conceptual framework. No. It's thinking about the concepts. Uh, it's doing it, and doing it involves thinking how you how it's working, what the parts are doing, and how you can um, change it in certain ways. If you know it's racist or sexist or or, or whatever, need not be, of course. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So you all right. One of you you talked about the importance of, of Spinoza for your for your work and particularly the intervention on on uh, privacy that you make you make in this book and obviously that like Spinoza is the subject of the last chapter and uh, you've mentioned uh, a couple of times the importance of Balabar's definition of, of Spinoza as a philosopher of communication. I, I want to run something by you on this so. The part of the way I, I, I read the book or, or the virtue of the book in, in, in my uh, terms is that when we when we talk about about privacy, there's um, there's there's this fundamental tension where that, that you bring up early in the book. So on the one hand, you know, one recognizes like like um, uh, even maybe one of the reasons to write a book on privacy at this time. There's all the all the stories about big data and information mm. and surveillance and things being recorded. And on the one hand, this leads certain people, especially kind of classic liberals, to say, you know, there's a crisis of privacy um, created by technology, and what are we going to do? But I think from early on in the book, you then start um, su- suggesting that while these are indeed real problems. Right. You're also aware, and you do a very, you very elegantly like point out the various contradictions and aporias in the in the political different political philosophies around privacy, different debates around privacy, and pointed to such things as the way um, pr- uh, privacy has been used as a, a means of, um, say, for example, like. Uh, protecting a, a the husband's rights to commit sort of domestic violence against against his wife and and these kind of historical fault lines that have always been present uh, early in the book you, you give this 
um, great example of all of these court cases that are, are kind of concerned with um, the way in which a man, uh, um, a, a white man, usually a white sort of middle class landowning man, how, you know, um, decisions that protecting a man's reputation, right, is more important than protecting, like, the woman in his home who may be suffering violence, whereas in contrast, you talk about uh, 1.2 former slaves who are... Um, uh, and and these these kind of uh, legal decisions around around no no this former slave who's been beating his wife like he should be lynched and dragged through the streets and publicity is entirely necessary and even the Ku Klux Klan support publicity in this sense and then um, and so just coming back to to uh, your last set of remarks I think that what you do really elegantly in the book and we'll we'll, we'll go through some of the arguments in in different sections via Battersby and Kant and the philosophy of information all the different things you talk about but I think Spinoza the Spinoza's framework that you just outlined allows you to kind of um, almost to cut a Gordian knot there right in regards to these tensions like to give you a new um, criteria for thinking about um, the, the ways in which uh, privacy is on the one hand necessary at times, right, and, and deleterious or harmful um, at other times. And, and, and given what you just named as the, the importance of communication for, Spinoza wouldn't say human flourishing, but of communicating ideas uh, by which we develop um, our own capacities by, by which we develop adequate knowledge of ourselves and of the world and of a situation, thus, thus increasing our power and our joy. And you use this criteria, especially around things like what, what you just said about um, revenge porn, where you, where you say, okay, um, you mentioned that it's, it's not only deleterious for the victim to have her privacy violated in this, in this way, but also for the, for the person perpetuating the crime um, that he's he's coming from a position of some kind of resentment about the relationship for which he blames uh, his ex-partner and as but as such he remains as you say stuck at what Spinoza would call the the first level of knowledge right where you are simply imagining projecting external causes onto the world and I think what's what's remarkable about your your book and really instructive about it is is the way you you use Spinoza to kind of cut through this mess of conflicting arguments of all of the the historical baggage around privacy where you you you, you, it's it's as if I, I feel you're neither on the side of a kind of um, uh, the free speech defender who would go privacy is sacrosanct in all cases and and must be defended because you are aware of the historical the ways historically that position has been used to produce various to occlude various abuses of power and so on. But you're also um, you're also concerned legitimately with the kind of figures we'll talk about commodification later but the kind of uh, you mentioned Skinner and behaviorism sometimes <laughs> like we could we could use a sort of we could have a kind of totalitarian society while by monitoring everybody's data we can kind of um, mechanically create a better of society like you, you want to say no I think to both these options and Spinoza gives you this really elegant way of not just not just answering the question, but doing the thing I think philosophy is particularly adroit at, especially given your last remarks, which is which is interrupting and reconceptualizing. Like like that, it's not just enough to answer the question. One also has to question the ways in which the question is is framed. Um, yeah. So um, uh, first of all, do you, um, I I suppose given given that we've sort of started with your answer. 
um, <laughs> to the question of privacy. Maybe we should go back to the to the question, like like how you mm. got how how you got interested in in the problem of of privacy. How did that happen, Janice? How did you first? How, how, where did you start with regards to these debates and questions about privacy? Um, it's really a feminist philosophy, yeah. which is what I see myself doing. Yes, yes. Um, and my other two books were were both on. Um, on feminist philosophy, starting with conceptions of self and what it is to be a self-person yeah. individual. Um, and then secondly, this, on the social contractarians. And I contentiously included Spinoza, <laughs> not because you classify him like that particularly, but no, because, no. of course, I think he really um, allows you to see to frame them differently. I think there's something really important about Spinoza. And so I've continued what I'm interested in, feminist philosophy, conceptions of self that, that relate to that, and um, early modern political theory that I thought was a useful position through which to, to think these problems. Uh, and that led me to privacy because um, the feminism, I mean, there's a wonderful bit uh, um, Carol Pateman's work mm. where she's talking about the public-private divide um, and she says really in some ways that's what feminism is about Yes, yes. and it's a particular way that the split and she positions it with Locke and I come back to mm -hmm. Locke as well here again Balabar's reading very interesting yes, yes. but also positioned with um, with work from the history of political th thought. Anyway, uh, leaving that for a moment. Mm -hmm. Carol Pateman, public-private divide is central to what feminism's about. Why? Because at a certain point in time, she says, uh, Locke in the two treaties, to be precise, mm. he's distinguishing, in his attack on Filmer, mm. um, He's distinguishing political power from the power of husbands. Yes. Now, he's doing it for... It's a, in the history of thought, a progressive move, but sadly mm. not progressive for women, in that he's positioning husband's power within the home and the prerogative that we'll, we'll talk about in a moment that you mentioned. Um, nature. Uh, positioning it within nature, yeah, yeah. and hence against the political, and hence mm. something that isn't... Um, that's trivial and not part of a political struggle yes. or it's natural in ways that mean that uh, 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 questioning it is just it's just silly um and hence the husband's prerogative and so on that uh, that you mentioned so it's that view of public private and the problem of um the private realm in which abuse can occur that the feminists have been um, successful in some ways in actually raising public attention about, even yes. if in practice it's it's not great, no, no, um, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, people are aware of it. You then get um, computer-mediated communication and the problems that this brings and there is a temptation to say, oh, but we're talking about something entirely different here. Yes. While simultaneously yes. feeding on ideas about 
privacy being linked to intimacy of the body and sometimes the the space of the home and what gets classed more as a, a private space you get all of that while simultaneously try, somehow trying to say oh well as liberals we've we've dealt with the public private problem <laughs> completely and we're talking about something different and so i was interested in looking basically at the different ways in which we use the term privacy and how it's been used historically. At this point in time when, you know, there are, you know, great problems that I'm not denying that, that that arise as a result of computer-mediated communication. Um, So hence, yes, you mentioned the work that I used um, from Siegel about... um, she chases at a certain point in time in the US when feminists and for different reasons people from the temperance movement were making headway um, because it was rather incompatible to say that husbands should have a prerogative to beat their wives while simultaneously uh, advocating the sentimental family and so you get the point when people say ah that's you know that's inconsistent, we don't believe that anymore. And the courts say that. Um, and what Siegel shows is that actually, even though the prerogative goes, the use of the idea that privacy is important means that, you know, the sh- curtains should be closed on domestic violence and it shouldn't be a um, a public matter for the courts. And so what when the courts are adopt that they put on firmer grounding husband's ability to um get away with beating their wives so explicitly denying the prerogative yes yes which they once would have upheld yes so they they simply maintain the the courts being Mm -hmm. able to ignore the practice Mm -hmm. by changing the conceptual framework Mm -hmm. and it's it's interesting to look at that point in time because um Lawyers always, when you think of privacy, they always think of the um, 1890 Harvard Law Report from Warren Brandes. And the point I make in that is that it it doesn't, even though you have some case law in the area of privacy, even in torts law, the civil law between individuals, um, and not simply criminal law, when it comes to... Um, uh, domestic violence against women. Um, you, you have cases on that. They go through in their article, which is, you know, the central famous article on privacy, and they don't mention that at all. Yeah, which is um, extraordinary, egregious. Yeah, effect, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I make that point mm. and go through the points that they they are making, of course, in certain ways. Which is, which, uh, if I remember it correctly, is they, they conceive... Um, uh, the invasion of they try to conceive the invasion of, of privacy as a, as a tort, right? Uh, uh, is, uh, yes. And, but um, uh, and you're saying and they um, but while doing so they omit this this whole this whole sort of history in relation to in relation to I suppose um, I mean first to to domestic violence and and, and so on and the the, the sex and, and racial gendered and racial histories of this but also uh, 
you suggest also the the political philosophical underpinnings of of the notion of, of privacy. I'd like to come back to that actually. So this uh, when you when you mentioned Locke and your reading of Locke through um, um, through through Balibar again. Uh, I mean the, the the point that you make about uh, the the first treatise is is really interesting to me. So on the one hand, progressive because. Um, uh, you know, objecting to the divine right of kings, like we could all we could all get on, we, you know, we could all get yeah, on board yeah, with that. Get on board with that yeah. Except for, <laughs> except for the, I think the neo reactionary division of accelerationism online, but, you know, but you know they're not they're not listening presumably. Um, and uh, but but uh, yeah, at the same time, like a depoliticization, restoring the sphere of the household to something like it's it's even it's it's greek roman like as part of the sphere of, of nature of the oikos of something beyond uh politics and then you have feminism intervening to to, to change the idea that the oikos is kind of is is kind of outside of the the polis e, yeah so it's so not so as bad i mean look isn't as bad as that i mean there are uh, husbands can't do anything in terms of... They right, can't that's significant. Oh, right, wives. so it's not the Roman painter familiars, right? <laughs> no, who could, no, who no, could no, like, kill his not, sons no, and his, all of his children because it's complete sovereign. Uh, actually, you say that, in fact, that it's not sovereignty that is the model anymore. It, it, yes, yeah. that's yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, and, of course, there are, uh, you know, there's interesting um, lock scholarship on that I'm not pretending to on this, on the right, positive right, right. sides of Locke, but yeah, also, yeah. Uh, you know, Paintman's argument is very much that, uh, you know, there is a... <clears throat> and I'm with her in terms of the public-private divide, mm-hmm. and I think it is it is something that's central to feminism and, and really um, remains so in, yes, the, yes. in that regard. Something else on Locke that whilst I, I was looking at him, and I'm not holding myself out as a, a Locke scholar, but something I thought was really interesting when it comes to, and this is something I'll talk about later as well, so sure, about sure. the structure here, but another note that what feminist philosophy sometimes does is cut between different areas of philosophy. So, in this example with Locke, mm. um, there's, um, I looked at uh, Janet Coleman's work mm-hmm. in terms of uh, her work on Locke uh, from at Positioner within the history of um, philosophical thought, mm. um, and Balabar, who'd be positioned as a continental philosopher, yes. and of course it's interesting uh, in his work on Locke. Um, I think in her introduction to one of his books, Stella Stanford says, well, you know, it's odd it hasn't been taken up, but it's because Locke's not classified in some ways as continental philosophy. Uh-huh, uh-huh, and I, think it's, I yes. think it's really interesting when you put some, you draw between uh, categories of, you know, where philosophy's dumped. And feminism does this particularly. Say, for example, Cornell and Hampton, in very different in certain ways, mm. but asking mm. similar questions and coming out of Kant in similar ways. Well, that's contentious, <laughs> but certainly in interesting ways that, that have some, that speak to each other in certain regards, even if they don't. Um, the same here. I think that John Coleman makes a really interesting move that actually has relevance to to Balabar's. Mm. And I I read them together. Mm. 
just because I think it's fascinating that she bring they both actually bring together his essay concerning human understanding and the two treaties. Um, this will be such a um, bastardization of a, a complicated argument, but um, Coleman says that, and she's looking at concepts of self as well, and she says that. Um, you can link them together because whilst we're familiar with, you know, chapter five of the, the second treatise about property mm. and the idea that it's it's because it's our duty to God to survive, it's our duty to appropriate. We shouldn't wait until everybody in the world consents before being able to, to eat from natural bounty. You should be able to, to do that. And, of course, he's, he's making that uh, argument in terms of just famously justifying property but it's about um appropriation of the natural world uh, and when do you appropriate it you know if you're eating something at what point but she links it with the essay about um human understanding the es the point about selfhood yes, where she talks about um a similar sort of move that you appropriate ideas um, and work on them just as you work on it's just as on. it's yeah. wonderful just as you justify you know being able to to eat because you've worked or mm. you've picked it or whatever the same here that you work on ideas and that you appropriate mm -hmm. things working on ideas it's a brilliant yeah, it's, connection it's great it, yeah. and what um what Balabar does in in a different <laughs> in a different forest, looking at different things, is um, perhaps a more complex move, focusing on the the essay, but thinking about almost the artisan idea of interpolation that you could you work on your not just working on ideas that uh, you know produce you, but working on yourself. So there's an interesting essay when he, he talks about the performative contradiction that's so much more between um, the idea of uh, my own self. And it was, it was actually came out of an error he made with the, the translation, thinking my own um, in, in a poem was actually referring to myself. But mm -hmm. it's still a point about, it seems as if you've got a splitting in which there's a self that owns itself. And that's the one that's owned. Yeah. Um, there's a point when he then says um, it's rather like the the heterosexual couple, oh, yeah. <laughs> which alarmed me, which, because, sure, because sure. he, well, you know who's going to be the one that's owned. Yeah, 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 but, yeah absolutely, but, absolutely. But the reason that I think he says this is, it seems to be an engagement with Irigaray, um, hmm. where you do have the idea of um, the sex that is not one, mm -hmm. and the idea of how you think the couple and it seems to be an engagement with her, which could mm. be really interesting, mm. but he doesn't cite her no. and doesn't sort of then... I, I wrote a paper on that, actually, when oh, he wrote right, it right, at right. the time, but yeah. doesn't seem to um, deal with that at all. And yet it's kind of evocative, and certainly evocative of uh, irregularised work. Um, so that's what interested me, bringing those two figures together because there's a lot to be said about Locke certainly Carol Pateman's work um, 
when she talks not just about the public-private divide, but on property and the person, and, uh, you know, looks at that not just in the sort of Marxist terms, but in terms of um, property and the person in the position of um, married women, and, and brings those together. And so she looks at Locke for that, and I was interested in that because he gets claimed, of course, by neoliberals and the mm -hmm. idea of property. But also the essay is so much more complex that yes. it's it's interesting to try to pull the two the two together in the way that um, both Balabar and Coleman do. And I don't think these are contradictory positions. Mm -hmm. I think they add to each other. And... Um, Pavements, of course, is about a political legal fiction of property in the person, uh, whereas the other two are, are looking at his concepts of self. And I just thought I, I just thought it was particularly sort of interesting, um, and it is because it's relevant to privacy simply because you get lock being taken, particularly the property in the person, the idea that. Um, our time, if you take the Marxist point, of course, the, our time, and Macpherson in his possessive individualist ideas that, that take this up, um, that your labour power or the woman's um, work within marriage, though she's not positioned as owning her labour in that context, can be seen in terms of a commodity. And yes. that becomes really interesting when you've got a position where um, everything starts to be seen in terms of commodities, including the idea of having Richard Posner's of having a market in privacy and a market in frying. In prying, and prying. It's yeah. wonderful. Yes. This is yes, this is a. Um, I, I definitely want. I, I, I'm going to ask you, invite you to talk about this because this is an extraordinary chapter of your book. Um, I I should mention that uh, Janice's book. Uh, you you told me that uh, it, it originally had this wonderful. Um, um, title Argos Unbound, right? Um, referring to the the hundred eyed uh, beast of Greek mythology being being and, and playing on, on Prometheus Unbound. But I I think the chapter on Posner should be called something like Maniacs Exclamation Mark because because it's yeah you do this extraordinary analysis of he's he's almost like the reductio ad absurdum of a of a neoliberal attitude to to both privacy and itself. So I'd, I'd like you to talk about this in in uh, but just a, a quick comment before I invite you to do that and that is I really like what you um, uh, what you said before which is something that I hadn't thought of even even reading the, the book about uh, the way feminist philosophy cuts across all of these um, different kind of disciplinary boundaries because of its interest in in the effects of, of 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 discourse right which which i think so i mean maybe i would also before i get you to talk about posner just just quickly ask you whether whether you think um this is true but it i i was at one point going to ask you whether you know how you first encountered spinoza and so on and perhaps we could still talk about that but from your answers i i i also get this the sense that uh, to some extent for you um there was something Spinozist always, I mean, I know you're explicitly influenced by feminist uh, philosophers who are also Spinoza scholars like Susan James and Laurie Gaytons and Genevieve mm. Lloyd, but, and, and uh, uh, in whose company I place, I place you too, Janice, oh, of course, um, but, but I, um, but I have the, the impression that part of your attraction to Spinoza is that, is that there was something 
uh, spinocist that you had observed already at work in the feminist philosophy that, that you were looking at, as in not just in the explicit cases, like in terms of Gaten's and James's works and so on, but in the very idea of feminist philosophy, in, in terms of what it was interested in, as in looking at these these effects of what you've been calling conceptual frameworks and and uh, and discursive um, um, regimes um, in a way in a way that uh, disrupts that. But so yeah, I suppose uh, uh, two questions there. Um, I mean, one, or well, Posner, we'll get to him. We'll talk about the the commodification of, of the self and privacy and prime. But uh, two, if you if you want to say anything more about this, how you encountered uh, Spinoza and. And the kind of yeah, I'm just interested in this remark. But the, the uh, I suppose a kind of underlying spinozism to the very idea of feminist philosophy. Ah, oh, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, yes, I suppose this comes out of um, Christine Battersby's work in certain ways. Huh. Um, but o- obviously also a sort of uh, you know. Moira Gaitens, it's around mm-hmm. yeah. trying to think differently about selfhood so that you don't conceptualise human essence as something that's sort of fixed and yes. underlying, yes. which leads women or those positioned with women with women's bodies in a position of um, network of power don't um, view them as being the least best instantiation of what it is to be human. <laughs> so that's why it's a, a, an interesting, I think, feminist question. Yeah. I'd like to take up as well the point that um, you ask about um, feminist theory actually cutting between certain disciplines. Um, I think really that happens when you've got feminists. Uh, I mean, I would think about Jean Hampton compared with Drusilla Cornell um, whilst we're thinking about sort of count and contract really Um, because whilst they they are clearly different because they're both using count um, and and there's some influence there uh, rules as well you know but you could just sort of view it in terms of count and doing so with feminism I think that whilst I don't want to uh, sort of wouldn't want to upset Cornell (laughs) it's I I do think that there's some interesting conversation there uh, about the way that they're using what it is to be a free and equal person in order to um, start that as a, a as a grounding point and I think there's some, just in my own work, I'm int- I was interested in Hampton, even though I wouldn't want any, I, I use her premises as a sort of axiom to say, well, you know, uh, being interested in Spinoza, I don't think of personhood as some, uh, you know, the Kantian position as really potentially a good starting point, oh, I didn't. Mm. But then if you simply use the idea of free and equal persons, you know, treating people as if they were, um, you can use that as an axiom. So you're then forcing people to say, well, you know, if you're, if you fail the sorts of tests that Hampton says as to whether you're treating somebody as a, a free and equal person, um, you're actually, because it's analytic, there's tests, um, 
nevertheless, you could you could just force them to turn around and say, "Oh, well, it's because I see you as a different sort, as not a person, or right, right, a different right, right, sort." Right. So you don't need to get the the whole of that sort of baggage that goes with it to make that a starting position. Sorry, and I, just, I thought that was sorry. So, oh, I, could I? Sorry, Janice. Um, uh, sorry, I interrupted you. I, I, um, you said I thought that it's. The arguments that she makes about trying to think uh, whether, you know, what the law's doing, actually. Mm. If the law's failing in terms of um, areas of, uh, you know, hate, whether racial, gender, whatever, to to actually make a public statement that this is unacceptable Mm -hmm. by what they do, um, or by giving women, you know... uh, any other sort of groupings failing to to give them credibility over uh, trials that involve them, mm. uh, then they're failing in their public duty, and it's it's that element coming out of Kant that sees um, cr- a criminal in hate crime as holding himself, or could be herself, out above others, and what the duty the law then has. And I thought that was that's an interesting position. I, I also liked the way she discussed the relationship between Hobbesian quasi-ethics, as she talks about mm-hmm. it, and Kantian ethics. But that's where I would position Spinoza as doing something different from within that tradition, and very different, actually, in terms of the ethics being an ethos. Okay, so can I clarify a bit on this? I, I wanted to ask you about this before deferring some of our, our, our other questions. So what you, what you just said um, made me think, yeah, I mean, you, you, engage with, you engage with Kant, and are you saying, I may have got completely confused there, but that you see something in the Kantian framework that, that is useful at the level, perhaps, of, of what I think you quote um, Gaitens at one point as saying is is a, a better fiction yes. in Spinoza's yes. time, right? Because that's yes. that's the impression. So so of of something uh, practically useful at the level of this better fiction in Kant, despite the fact that you, as a as a uh, Spinozist, like problematize the Kantian kind of ontology, and you also, I mean, I think you also uh, like take seriously the notion of autonomy, which is obviously fundamental to the Kantian framework, but also, um, and, and you do this in the book, you problematize the, the kind of conceptual framework, uh, frameworks on which the idea of autonomy, uh, from which the idea of autonomy stems insofar as it's not really a, a spinatist idea, and, and in particular your um, with your love of um, D seven, etc. I mean, great against the, great against the sort of <laughs> yeah. We do um, um, for listeners again. You know, uh, uh, our, our Spinoza reading group, which is Janice's intimated, disagrees on everything and thus can't function as a separate as a as no, a kind of as an individual in the world. D7. Does agree about the coolness of, of it's book one D seven or is it book two? It's book one D seven. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, we do agree on on the importance of D seven as um. Or, i.e. this thesis about trans about about trans individuality and, and, and communication but so so yeah so is it is it like you know Kant is Kant is for you a, a problematic figure he's he's um especially in especially because he is not so good at conceiving this kind of trans individuality maybe this leads him closer to to something like fixed essence despite numinal numinal freedom but yeah he can have this um 
uh, in terms of his discursive effects, like thinking of Kantianism as a sort of body in the world, in a Spinoza sense, there's something that you approve of. Uh, uh, there is that is that a, a reasonable way of putting it, or did I? Yeah, no, no, no sure, yeah, nuances, subtleties. Like, it, it, I think that I think that probably is is right. I'm not sure how much Kant I really want to take on. Oh, sure, 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 that's <laughs> but, totally fine. Because the, the Battersby work that I like is such a radical reading yeah, right, of, right, right, right. Of, of this. Yeah, but it made I think an interesting starting starting point because initially I thought why would you start why would you start with Kant yeah. you know when you could start with Spinoza and do <laughs> but I do think it's an interesting you know because the argument is that you know it isn't Descartes but Kant that has been so central in modernity that so that's why Busby take right, starts right. at that that position. So did she? I mean, did she say anything about this? I mean, when you were when you were worried, as in, as in, I'm sure I could just imagine you saying <laughs> to saying, her, "Why start yeah, there? Why start no, there? There's D7. The like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did she? Did you ever talk to her about this? So, or, or, um, I can't remember. Oh no, no, no. I'm sure I did. That's that's fine. I just uh, yeah. But, it, sorry. sorry, should we pick up? Um, where did we? Oh, we yes, the, we were we were talking about the the way that feminism, when it's actually focused on certain particular issues, can cut across. That's and right. I mean, you know, you, right. there's there is analytic feminism and, and continental yeah. feminism, yeah. and you know, the best those were worth reading. Of course, you know, of course, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, it does raise questions about the splits. Actually, those disciplinary splits. Oh. Yeah. Um, okay, so so coming to the question of, of Porzner, I mean, you, you've talked about um, uh, various motivations for, for writing them, but, but um, it strikes me that uh, among them is an a, attempt to uh, criticise the the reframing of of privacy in in terms of neoliberal conceptions of of subjectivity. So so. Um, uh, this this vision of, of the self as a as a commodity and and even as you mentioned before thinking of both privacy and prying as as commodities that can be sold about a market so can you tell me a bit about both uh the way uh, richard posner who is a, a judge yes, yes like think thinks about this and and your and your um critique of, of these ideas right when i said it was wonderful earlier it was just a sort of because I, I don't actually mean wonderful, of course, I'm critical no. of it, but oh, it's the way in which it almost becomes its own truth. You think of Foucault's lectures on biopolitics mm. that are about, you know, including um, American neoliberalism, mm. and the way that it actually um, sets up a whole framework and way of thinking that you can you can do, you know, once you make that leap and see see what they're doing. Um, and that may come back to the point about uh, how philosophy, some philosophies may ruin your life <laughs> because, of course, you are encouraged to see yourself as um, autonomous and as an enterprise, as a sort of company that's supposed to be, you know, acting as a company in your own rational best interests um, and objectifying the things that you do. And, of course... It, it's got its own internal consistency, but it sounds 
an awful way of life. Yeah. And but it's it, it's so when I said wonderful, I do want to, to make it plain. I'm not uh, advocating oh, it. Oh, but on the contrary, I, very much on the Yeah. On the contrary, mm-hmm. I think that, um, for example, Gordon Hull's use of the uh, Foucauldian analysis yeah. um, of the way that uh, I mean. For example, people are supposed to, you know, sign up to um, giving up their their privacy online when, of course, we all know that you couldn't possibly read it and there's jokes commonly known about how um, somebody (laughs) added into the contract, you know, on April Fool's that it would, uh, that you're signing over the soul of your firstborn. And of course, it makes no difference because nobody has a chance to read this. People are not ad item as we we think of in a contract. And uh, I mean, the Foucauldian analysis is a good one of of this, the way in which people are encouraged to have this view of themselves and how they're getting the short end of the stick on this if they're actually, um, because they're not actually being able to to have a say or or be autonomous at all when it comes to this. And in fact, they go into um, lengths to try to, to do something about it. Um, so it's where it leads you. You can see a coherent framework, but where it leads you, if you think of everything in terms of um, your ability to work or other aspects of yourself as as simply a commodity, um, that it's a difficult life to lead. But it's it's. I was fascinated by reading this because, of course, you you know the argument that there is um, a market in privacy and market in prying yes. that you know when Warren and Brandis um, so eloquently criticized the 19th century press um, you know that's the he's making a um, Posner's making a, a market terms about this but he wants to use that in terms of uh, seeing it as an object of reality in ways that then um, are to be applied to law, which leads him to conclusions that really um, companies ought to be uh, have their privacy protected, but individuals not. Hmm. When of course it's so counterintuitive yes. to everybody. Hopefully, well, it's counterintuitive to me. But, <laughs> you know that the harm and that can be done to people, and yeah. that the har- in terms. Uh, um, of mass humiliation and and so forth is is so much greater and when you look at um the advantage companies have and concerns about particularly undermining i don't know medicine or other areas you know it, it seems to be an obvious one so it's fascinating to see that and to read it in the context of, of Foucault's work um where you know, he's he's giving lectures on this as as a frame in which we can, you know, you can use it, you can see ourselves, you can come out with the answers if you adopt this frame. The problem is that, you know, the answers that are given um, are ones that, if you, for example, use the Spinoza's ethics that I was, I suppose, favouring, can be shown to be ones that um, undermine our powers of, Acting and understanding ultimately. Yeah, it, it's. I think the, the the point about understanding is really crucial here because when I when I was reading the the, the chapter on on uh, neoliberalism and you know I mean one, one of the things that's that intrigues me about some of these 
some of the the primary figures in in the in the kind of neoliberal tradition people like like Hayek and and Foucault is very good at, at bearing this out his analysis both of Americans and Germans is is the way in which unlike uh, uh, previous kinds of conservatives who would often appeal to something about human nature the way uh, neoliberals tend to say no 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 be precisely because the market um, has this salvific function and is kind of wiser than any government could possibly be we are quite happy to say, like, no, human nature, very very much against sort of old conservative schools, mm. has to be radically transformed and radically transformed in order to... Um, so, for example, that that kind of intuitive sense that one has that that the idea of, of, of privacy for corporations, as you just mentioned, and, and kind of complete invasion of privacy for, for individuals, that that is actually better as a society and so on. And th- these kind of neoliberalist theorists will say, well, exactly, I mean... Though it's those kind of intuitive prejudices that have to be broken down by the rationality of the market. And when I was thinking about this, uh, when I was reading your chapter on neoliberalism and, and thinking about Spinoza, I originally was asking myself a question that went something like this. I, I sort of thought, what, what does one do with um, descriptions of empowerment, I suppose, right? within a neoliberal framework like so for instance so for instance that i i say something like that in a society where there is an imperative to treat myself as a commodity certain processes that you might not normally associate with my autonomy that allow me to market myself more successfully as a commodity could be seen as a kind of increase of my power and therefore of my joy in terms of in terms of spinoza but it it strikes me on the basis of what you're saying that the, the, the really crucial difference here, because I, I suppose I'm also thinking that there's an element of neoliberal rhetoric that, that can sound like a, a kind of torso of Spinoza if you take away the rationalism, this kind of, you know, like improve yourself, like grow in power, like yeah, get, better, yeah. get, there, get better every day, you know, and this will make <laughs> you stronger. And even the kind of pseudo-stoic rhetoric, which I think I think you mentioned um, uh, and so on. But, but what's what's missing like let, let's say i'm i'm in a society where where i where i think you know um being subjected to some kind of um i mean something like even a kind of genital mutilation might sort of increase my market value because i'm subject to market value mm. it, it, it seems like also an increase in real power to some extent we don't want people to lack power and so on but but would I be right in saying that the difference, it seems to me, and in, in why you use Spinoza, is the dimension of adequate knowledge, that, that increase of power without adequate knowledge is not really increase of power, like unless, it is, would, is, that, is that true? Or would, you, or would you gloss that differently in terms of Spinoza? I, well, it's two things, really. That's, that's right. Um, and I think he does have... A, a more subtle analysis, really, in terms of what used to be called sort of ideology. Yes, indeed. Um, indeed. There is good. something interesting there. Yeah. But also, more basically, it's his image of the individual compared um, the relationship between the individual and the social. So you don't get the Hobbesian idea of competing individuals no, no, simply indeed. because we're able to form, with D7, we're able to form <laughs> singular things with others who are useful to us yeah but the usefulness isn't simply one of a sort of utility it's no. not a utilitarian no, certainly position not. it's it's an ethos yeah in which we're never 
we're never cut off really we're never isolated yeah. we can have effects as an individual so i suppose be called a singular thing but it's it, we couldn't survive at all it's about the obvious point that we mm. couldn't survive at all without being but when from his ontology we're radically we're part of parts 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 so you don't get the image of competing individuals um though you can get people you know he does come out with an explanation of um superstition and why we know the better and do the worse yes, yes. And i think that's you know that's a really interesting move that's that's made there yeah, where, where superstition would also have a, a kind of um, an ideologist, both these white Althusserians like him so much, that, mm. like Balibar, that, uh, uh, a material yeah. basis in that sense. And that, yes. that would be, I suppose, I'm glad you mentioned that, because that would, that would be the other thing that's necessary for, for a kind of uh, Spinozist ideology critique. Like if I, if I am interpolated as seeing something um, as, as empowering to me that is really actually learning well another spinoza phrase learning to love my own submission like fight for my fight my my own slavery this is also about um the my my material conditions this 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 also reminds me of another yes. issue that i i had um in spinoza which is about i think if you if you for, if you ignore d7 so much right like there's a kind of spinoza uh i, I suppose I'm, I'm almost thinking of something like uh making a sort of neoliberal parody of Spinoza. And oh, it's, yes. And it's wrong. So I talk like, about that. Ah, yes, 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 right. Yes. I think you do, yeah, in relation... Oh, can you remind me, though, Janice? I, I yeah? Um, it, it was basically what I, I've just said. I yeah, oh, sure, that, sure, sure. Um, yes, it can get set up because this idea that Foucault describes wonderfully uh, around sort of treating yourself as an enterprise Indeed. and so somehow trying to increase your power in that sense yeah, 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 yeah. could be um, a, a, a complete parody of, of what right, right, right. Stoicism or what yeah. Spinoza differently but you know was was talking about and that brings us back to the points that we're making that yeah, yeah. it has he has such a different view about the relationship between um the individuals and others that you know has all of this parts and parts and that you don't you know you're undercutting others is actually potentially undercutting your own ability as well yeah um it's such a different move it's not a utilitarianism and um, and the point you made about adequate knowledge we've kind of got around there <laughs> yeah yeah i mean because uh, yeah i was thinking even of, of sort of uh it coming back to this this question of the parody of, of exacerbating in a kind of like there's a there's an element of neoliberal discourse that of course thinks of of atomized uh, ind individuals and, and that as you say is incompatible with spinoza's um ontology but um I think one of the things that I, I find interesting and scary in, in, in someone like Posner and, and Hayek is the way in which there's a hmm, there's a kind of vestigial commitment to, hence liberalism, like focused on atomized individual, but there's also something that's almost like, and this is what I mean by, by parody of Spinoza, to a kind of, no, there are these relationships of of um like there is a kind of trans individuality of the market right and mm. and, and, and 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 uh and and so in in thinking of of how the discourse could be wrongly parodied i mean i i think of questions like if you take spinoza out of context and read lines about the increase in the in power or even um 
the the elements of the ethics that are, are derived from from Stoicism. You, you can say, say something like uh, our original example with um, with the uh, um, so in the case of something like revenge porn, right, when we said for, that from Spinoza's perspective, uh, from a Spinozian perspective, he didn't know he wasn't writing about revenge porn, from a Spinoza's perspective. I wasn't uh, great on women either. Yeah, no, as you, as you mentioned, the last, the, the, the end of the political treatise, but um, that there's something where the, the person who's committing the crime is still at a level of, of inadequate mm. knowledge insofar as he's projecting his resentment onto someone else doesn't have an adequate understanding of, understanding of causes. But I was thinking another form of inadequate knowledge, of proto- and one that you allude to in the book, I think a really common one, would be one in which I have learned not to project um, onto the other the cause of, of various sort of bad feelings in myself but to but to say blame myself right and that this is something that we find very often in people who are um, from from situations of, of privation and, and suffering mm. of various kinds like social and, and polit- like like say they've been they've been abused or they're from a disadvantage like like they're from a, 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 in terms of in terms of class in terms of in terms of race in terms of uh, gender and so one of if there's a spinatist imperative to to gather adequate knowledge of, of um, um, from that, you know, I, I, I think a mistake can be made where you read the imperative towards adequate knowledge back in terms of unspinatist moral concepts of responsibility, right? And so you start you start saying that, well, you know, why can't why can't those people who are who are in their self-loathing or whatever, or even in their sort of ill-directed impotent rage against things uh why don't they i mean we of course we want this to happen in the case of the revenge porn guy because that's an odious thing that's that's deleterious for everyone involved but i'm talking about other forms of say of say uh resentment that that Mm. may have been determined just by the situation of of suffering and so on and i suppose you know i mean obviously we don't want to say to these people you know you should get over yourselves and and so on and adequate knowledge um and i'm just thinking my guess is, but I'd like you to talk about this, that your response to this kind of, to to how one avoids sort of victim blaming at the level of adequate knowledge is that we, is that material basis of the conditions for one to, to, to get adequate knowledge is that we must do things about it uh, 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 to yes. enable people to, to gather adequate knowledge. Precisely because it is not about an, an individual and their responsibility. Yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not yeah. about the will. Yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Because you just don't have that cutting yeah. notion of the will in Spinoza yeah. yeah. at all. Um, so it's not that you're telling people just to get over yeah, something. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and it's not like the sort of... Um, Oh, I suppose this is what the the theme is about about mm-hmm. philosophy ruining your life. It's not a self help book at all. No, no, in indeed, indeed. Of, that sort of way. Yeah. Um, simply because y- you just don't have willpower. And that's, no, no, that's right. Because it's a deterministic universe, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but there is something around making something, I suppose, as Dennett says, less inevitable. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a good that phrase. Around, yeah. That, yeah. That is around a, a sort of. Uh, having a greater understanding and a powers of acting that others are a part of. I suppose that's a, a point. One thing I haven't mentioned actually on this mm. is the um, philosophy of information, ah, yes. which I think is yes. really interesting. Yes. Um, from another, again, this is about sort of being willing to look into different areas of 
philosophy. Um, and I think Floridi's way of characterising um, what what privacy is in terms simply of information flow and he uses the example as if a student house suddenly or a hospital <laughs> uh, suddenly had the walls, no walls yeah. uh, you know clear walls oh, that information walls, yeah. yes information flow but also the way he's thinking about the images of uh, sort of um somebody taking your private information into somewhere else mm-hmm. um, as being more akin to kidnap okay, because yeah. it can happen in a um, in a public place. Yeah. But also it's about, um, you know, he discusses telepresence and the oh, idea yeah. that it's actually taking something into, by effectively using a, you know, if, if you were using... Um, binoculars or something and then extending it's bringing that person's information to somewhere else as you would imagine kidnap in terms of that movement um and in some way i didn't mention it in the book but as i was thinking about it it's obviously it's very different position from judith butler completely Mm -hmm. different but it struck me that one of the moves she makes when she talks about hate speech um and the burning cross case is that it we're particularly vulnerable to words because it's something central to who we are. Yes. And Floridi, in an entirely different vein, not I want to stress the the same at all, mm. but he makes a very good case, I think, for thinking about selfhood, how you think selfhood in terms of information, and. That's why, in certain circumstances, information that it becomes more like an offence against the person than it does mere theft. Like than a crime against property. Yeah. Yes, than yeah. a, a crime yeah. against property. Um, if you say take what is is somebody's prop, and I compare his position with some of the extended cognition literature. Um, because I just remember Dennett saying about <laughs> if somebody with Alzheimer's is depending on a diary and somebody steals yeah. it, yeah. Um, then it, if it's, it's more like an offence against the person in that what you're doing is, is with messing with yeah. their mind. It's more like stealing their arm yeah. than yeah. stealing their cop, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and somehow, there's, I mean, there is a, a similarity here with that idea of... Um, seeing it as an offence against a person more akin to um, kidnap by analogy that Floridi makes Mm -hmm. when he's talking about actually, you know, supposing it wasn't, as I point out, comparing the two, supposing it wasn't that somebody took the diary but they then publish it, you know, it it feels because um, information, certainly some information, um, is so central to who we are that that becomes um, more against a crime against the person. And mm. I think it's a, a nice way of putting it. I also like the, the idea that some information just isn't and it seems to be more like dead hair or toenails. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful imagery. <laughs> yeah, and sticking within the metaphorics of the, like it remains yeah. a bodily personal metaphor. Yeah. That's great. Um, so... Um, Getting, getting towards the end of the, the interview, I suppose if I wanted to ask you a, a final question. Well, actually, mm-hmm. okay, two. <laughs> um, so one question I have is, 
uh, what, whether and, and uh, to what extent you think the Spinett's framework um, that you outline in the book could be taken up at the level of law or even whether or, or even whether it should be like this is the, um, um, or yeah like in terms in terms of debates in the in the kind of public sphere around around privacy particularly there are some sort of particularly um, intense ones going on at the moment like in regards to in regards to various kinds of social media and I think at some point uh, people will invoke the the law at some point and I think given that one of the things that you show is is how I suppose unspinitist um, the law is like like in its in its reliance on on uh, early forms of, of liberal political philosophy of sort of um, a, a taint of neoliberal ideas and so on do you think um, there can be or should be an, an uptake of, of some of the perspectives that you're talking about in spiritism within the law is there a precedent for this have there been have, are there moves within legal legal philosophy to try and to try and shift the way we've been understanding in, in privacy in this way or is your book a, an attempt to to start the kick off the landslide in that regard yeah i just just wonder how you how you think of your philosophical work in terms of in terms of law um, I think what it does, it doesn't set out obviously a, a sort of a frame for legislation. No, no, indeed. I mean, it, it's more about um, exploring different ways in which uh, privacy theorists, as well as um, philosophers, have been looking. Actually, the debt that many of them, particularly in the US, mm. the traditional privacy theorists, have relied. Um, without necessarily stating it, though obviously they they know they're focused on what they're doing, but have relied so much on the liberal tradition, and yes, I think the liberal, um, particularly um, Kant, Locke, and Mill, and I trace yeah. those yeah. debts to Kant, Locke, and yeah. Mill, and I think that's really and this is why philosophy is so useful that you you, you know it's almost at the point where. Um, Oh, apart from sort of with Posner and neoliberals, <laughs> uh, liberalism, when you think about privacy, you think of the public-private divide and you think of it in terms of liberal thought. Absolutely. To the extent that Warren and Brandis actually define privacy as the right to be let alone, yes. the, you know, the negative freedom, as yes. Berlin yes. turns yes. it, in, yes. in sort of liberal discourse. So it is interesting to trace that and trace what's at stake in that and to, to offer a different way of thinking that is actually out of that Enlightenment tradition, but more from the radical Enlightenment tradition of Spinoza. And that's what I was really doing. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to clarify, I suppose, within its tradition, where some of the privacy scholarship lies and who they draw from yeah, yeah. and the greater implications of that. Look at other ways in which um, privacy is being thought, say, through neoliberalism um, and Locke I think is interesting because of the way it gets taken up in certain ways in both mm. and yet you know Coleman and Balabar's reading of the essay I, I do think it has something um, 
there's something about it that I'm interested. If you pushed it in a certain direction, mm. could become Spinoza's. It clearly isn't. It's no, no, clearly no, no. very no. different. But uh, it's this appropriation. The appropriation of ideas and the appropriation of food or things that we need. If it wasn't an appropriation, but we thought... Of, and. It, it, it's like saying if it wasn't Locke, but <laughs> bear with me, it's a bit tenuous this by the end. Um, but if it was in, if it's thought in terms of encounters, yeah, um, like it's been, yeah, you, you shift it yeah. to that sort of a Spinozan position. So I thought their work, particularly sort of Coleman and Barnes, was interesting on Locke and, and looked at how he gets taken up in very different ways. And I mean, it, sometimes he's just. As Susan Moller Rodkins said about Nozick, he's just referencing Locke to support. He's not, you know, it's not really a, an engagement, but I thought he was an important figure. Um, and so it, it's basically trying to inform th by looking underneath, I suppose, it, it, as to what's what's grounding some of the, the debates and the images of selfhood that's grounding yeah. those debates and what's at stake in it. And then the more positive, I thought, but um, obviously just putting my toe in the water here, the philosophy of information, I think, is coming out with a very interesting sort of ontology in Floridi's work. And in some ways, I'm interested in that relationship between philosophy of information and, and Spinoza. Um, and, but it was the Spinoza that I brought to it and wanted to apply. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there's a there's a fascinating footnote in the book that reminds me of something I've I've heard you say in conversation where you suggest, you know, that that information may be maybe a a name for the third spinatus <laughs> um, attribute, which I, I find very very inter like interesting on the speculative ground. But yeah, you're, I mean, you're difficult kind of, though, very, difficult very because difficult. of the, because of the way it interrelates with, with thought. thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I do have pages of that that are cut from the book. Ah, I'd love to see the. I'd love to see the <laughs> because final it no paper longer it was no longer about privacy at all. Oh, because I can imagine it, it would take over once that incredibly yes. sort of feckant thought kind of generated. You would have it would have started to be a book on the the, the very idea of a, of the third attribute <laughs> of, of substance. So, um, yeah, but I mean, I the answer you just gave. I, I mean, I definitely. Uh, see this th see this in your work that there's an engagement with the with the liberal uh, with liberal political philosophy as it's a as it's a foundation um, for current political institutions like it's even the the kind of spontaneous mode of reasoning we have when we think about questions of like of like of personhood and privacy in an attempt mm. to displace this and I think lots of people have seen as as you do in Spinoza a, a kind of road not taken in regards to something like liberalism that there are these strange affinities mm. like what yes. you said with Locke, with the liberal tradition but it's like it's like a different kind of liberalism it's it's a liberalism without um some of the same metaphysical and political assumptions that that liberalism has but one that is is uh that remains kind of um connected perhaps to what um compatible rather with what's best in 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 in, in the liberal tradition so i suppose um yeah, I was wondering whether, I mean, given that philosophy 
often goes from being something that is in the mind of, or historically we see moments of that, that, you know, it's just something that a few crazy people are, are sort of thinking and no one pays any attention to it, to being something like the spontaneous conceptual framework of a society. So you could sort of imagine before Once Upon a Time, if we were talking about law, everything would be filtered through, you know, there'd be a kind of background Thomism, right, or something like that, or natural with natural law theory and so on. And now, um, you know, there's this kind of, um, background, background liberalism. But um, do you see any signs, or do you have any hopes of this being of the philosophical reinterrogation of liberalism, kind of penetrating th- into the the legal the legal sphere? Like, like, do you think we'll, we'll be able to, um, like, do you see signs of a reform of of law along these lines, like like to a spinatist <laughs> liberalism rather than a, a Lockean Hobbesian one that we have? That's an interesting thought. Um, not sure I do. I think I'd be more worried in some ways about neoliberalism. Yes. The, that shift, really. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, and, that, you know, uh, the law and economics movement that's been so uh, tactical. Uh, uh, <laughs> of which Posner is a, is a member or is connected yeah. to, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's... that's um, that's unfortunate, right? So that so there will be there will be a paradigm shift, but it will just be it will complete the shift to neoliberalism of, of like of, of 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 like no one will blink when people say, you know, obviously the person is a commodity, prying is a commodity, privacy is a commodity, all things are commodities. We all know that, right? That's, and that's not a prediction. I don't think we should give up. You uh, know, oh no, it? no, no, it's, it's good, good, Janice. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to, I, Some frameworks we may not agree with, but they're <laughs> better than others. You know? <laughs> unquestionably, unquestionably. All right, um, uh, Janice, uh, Janice Richardson, um, um, it's been a really great pleasure um, um, to converse with you this this afternoon. I, I um, like I said, I, I've wanted to um, have you as a guest on on this show. Uh, pretty much since I first conceived of it some some years ago. So um, thank you so much for for coming in today and for talking to me. Um, thank you very much. Jan. Thank you oh, very much. Yeah. And, thank you. Oh, and just as one last thing, we can cut this. We can cut this, editors, if we if 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 Janice doesn't want to do this. But I um I was thinking of mentioning that uh, the book uh, that's been a base of our discussion, uh, Law and the Philosophy of Privacy, by Professor Janice Richardson, is being launched um, um, quite soon. Janice, would you would you mind telling our listeners the the date of, of and time of this launch? Or? Oh yes, thank you for the uh, the plug. Yeah, it's the 30th of March um, at Monash City Chambers, which is 555 Lonsdale Street at 6.30. And I, I believe um, the book will be uh, introduced by the brilliant and charming and inimitable uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Justin Clements, uh, the first guest on this podcast. So um, uh, please turn up if you have any interest in, in philosophy, uh, law, privacy, uh, feminism, um, which which I think surely covers every. Like, if you're not interested in any of those <laughs> things, like, really, what's what's wrong with you? Right? <laughs>